Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during the centennial, the 100th anniversary of Oregon State Park System, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, we're heading to an often overlooked corner of South Central Oregon, home to a big mountain, glorious hot springs, and one of the most majestically absurd birds on this fair earth. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today we are going to talk about a really cool place in South Central Oregon, home to a big mountain, desert lakes, hot springs, canyons, and lots of room to explore. The destination is Heart Mountain, located northeast of Lakeview and just a ways north of the California state line. Now, personally, I've only traveled to Heart Mountain once in my travel, so I wanted to get an expert to talk about everything this area brings to the table from camping to hiking to hunting to soaking in hot springs. With that in mind, today I'm joined by Michael O'Casey, Pacific Northwest Field Manager for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. He's written the history of this area, traveled extensively around Heart Mountain, and he joins us today from Bend. Michael, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. All right, so to get started, why don't you talk about the Heart Mountain area a little bit by painting us a picture? Now, last time I was out there, I remember it being one of those big Eastern Oregon fault block mountains. It kind of seems like a mountain range, but it's just one big chunk of mountain, kind of like Steen's Mountain a little bit. And then it's got canyons, it's got peaks, it's got high desert rivers. So can you expand on that description a little bit for somebody who's never been there? Kind of what, what would you expect out there? Yeah, sure. You know, it's a it's a fantastic landscape in Oregon. And I think that's one of the places or one of the reasons I love this state is just the diversity of landscapes. And Heart Mountain certainly fills that niche of just a different part of our state. Uh, it's located in the southeast corner of Oregon, and it lies on the northern edge of the geography of the Great Basin. You know, the Great Basin is characterized by the fact that all the waters that fall into it have no exit to the Pacific Ocean. And so that makes water really a key feature on this landscape. And that's really where Hart comes in as a, you know, one of those wildlife havens really, because it's a fault block mountain, like you mentioned, that rises over 8,000 feet in an otherwise fairly um, dry landscape. And so Hart gets a lot of that cold winter snowpack that melts slowly throughout the summer um, and really offers a chance to, uh, you know, harbor more than 300 species of the wildlife that are found there. It's really well known for those, you know, three different things. Um, it's abundant wildlife and of course it's hot springs and then also just 
the remote nature of that landscape out there. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely, I, I remember on that trip, like it does feel like you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then all of a sudden this big mountain rises up. It's pretty dramatic. It's, it's pretty fun driving to heart just because like, you know, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. And they're like, whoa, that is a, that is a large mountain just kind of appearing out there. So we'll get into the more detail a little bit later, but generally what do people do out there? Why make this pretty lengthy trip if you're coming from the Willamette Valley out to Heart Mountain? I mean, it is, it's like an eight-hour drive from Salem, four hours from Bend. So so why is it worth uh, you know committing that time to this particular area? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's not an easy place to get to, that's for sure. An eight-hour drive within the same state is something else. You know, just the, even the drive itself, though, is part of the reason to go. Um, you get to traverse through the Cascade Mountains, you know, you drive through the, the Highway 97, the Pine Forest, and then out into the, the, the beginning of the, the Sagebrush Step. And then it's kind of a three hour drive through the Sagebrush Step. And again, like you said, you just all of a sudden see this large fault block mountain, which tips uh, almost sort of tips east to west, where the, the western face is a, a sheer cliff that's about 3,500 feet of rock, um, if you're looking at it as you drive west. and you drive up and it's it's one of these places that just is refreshingly remote and wild. During that drive, you don't pass a whole lot of towns um, and they become fewer and fewer on the way out. It's one of the only places in Oregon I've been to where you can you can tell your kid, hey, we're going to see some pronghorn and some mule deer and maybe even a bighorn sheep. And, and it's an accurate statement. It's one of the easiest places to see some wildlife in our state. And that's what makes it feel really worthwhile. And then just the sense of adventure when you're out there. You know, it does have some great services, but it's also got a lack of a lot of developed trails. The roads you're on are all gravel out in that country, and it's, it's just a great place to explore. And then, of course, at the end of the day, to sit in a hot spring and stare under some of the nation's darkest skies and look at the stars is, is just a great added bonus. Yeah, I like the way that you mentioned kind of the isolation out there, because it definitely feels that way. You know, the towns you pass, very tiny, you know, like one traffic light towns, you just kind of cruise through you get out there to like a trailhead and it's not like marked the way it is like in Mount Hood National Forest or something like that. Yeah. There's not a big developed area. It's like, you know, you drive to the end of a gravel road and then you're you're on your own. Like this, it's, it's an adventure. You got to be self-sufficient. So obviously there's a lot of history here and I want to get a little deeper into that later, but it's called the Heart Mountain Antelope Refuge. So why did it get that name? And again, very shortly, because we'll get into this later, what's the, what's kind of the backstory for carving out this protected place on public land? Yeah, today the region's really known for for the adventurous uh, nature, the remoteness, and, and those opportunities on a National Wildlife Refuge to have that wildlife-dependent recreation opportunity. Um, but 100 years ago, it was really, really important to save these pronghorn antelope and the species that it was named after. They really were on the brink of collapse. And so you know, pronghorn in the late 1800s were seeing pressures from settlers coming to the West and then the Great Basin and the, and the, the, the habitat out there was getting developed for agricultural fields and really just over harvest and development pushed these animals to the edges of habitat where there was an arid landscape and not enough food to survive. And these early conservationists and hunters saw the need to protect the species. And so it was in the 1920s when some biologists and the Boone and Crockett Club partnered with the Audubon Society and actually purchased a small 31,000 acre ranch in northern Nevada, just south of the Oregon border. 
And that became the, the Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge. And it was all this time going on when the president of the United States at the time, um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, became also started to hear about this landscape. And in the 1930s, he created these two refuges, the Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge and the Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge as a way of conserving and connecting these key summer and winter range habitats to help save this fleet-footed pronghorn antelope. Um, and it was really a huge success. I mean, you fast forward to today and the landscape has abundant numbers of pronghorn and uh, it's just a really great wildlife refuge haven that all at the outset was to save a relatively imperiled species. Yeah, I'm always curious, interested in that because, you know, we, we always think about, you know, wildlife species being in trouble, you know, now. Um, but it's interesting. You go back a hundred years and even a little bit more. I think about like the Willamette River was in terrible shape back then, much worse than it is today. And there's actually been a lot of improvements there. And, you know, same, same for this. You know, you think about like, oh, man, wildlife species are in much worse shape now than they were. But that's not necessarily the case. So now, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, we're going to talk about all the cool stuff you can do out here in this area in more detail. But what's, let's first talk about if you're going to head out there, you know, if you're inspired and you're like, you know, I want to try something new. This sounds interesting. What about making a base camp out there? Like what are the towns or the resorts or the nearby areas that would make a good place to make your base camp if you're headed over there and you want a roof over your head? We can talk about camping, but if you want a roof, uh, what, what are your options out here? Yeah, that's a, that's a limited option, um, but there are some good ones. Uh, you know, we've talked about the remoteness of the region, and it's just no joke. I mean, Lake County is one of the least populated in the entire nation. Um, and if you can picture, it's a county with one person on average per square mile of country, um, I love which is just amazing. It really is. And so, but yeah, to sum it up here quickly, you know, Lakeview, Oregon is the hub for Lake County. You know, several thousand people live there and it's got restaurants and good lodging options. And it's really the, the stopping point to get groceries and gas and a meal before heading out and up to Heart Mountain. But it's a little less than two hour drive from the headquarters. So it's it's kind of on the edge of accessibility for day trips. But then if you drive a little further in, there's two small towns, Plush and Adel, that are against the base of the, the western side of the, the refuge there. And Plush has a couple cabins that they offer that are available to rent, and they've got some great views of Heart Mountain, and they're really close to the Plush Cafe, which, you know, has a, it's just a great classic general store that you can go to for gas and some some cafe-style food and, and some groceries as well if you're missing something. Gotcha. Yeah, Lakeview, I, I really liked Lakeview. I've, I've been through Lakeview twice. That town has a lot of character. Um, there's there's a lot going out there, so I, I need to make it back to Lakeview. That's a that's a cool area. So what about camping? You know, we'll jump into the most well known one in a bit. But is there a fair amount of camping to be had, and what does it typically look like when you're doing it? Yeah, yeah, camping opportunities uh, in Southeast Oregon are, are abundant, um, to say the least. Uh, you know, the uh, the Lakeview BLM district, which surrounds Heart Mountain National Wildlife Refuge, is about almost 4 million acres of public lands. Um, and that just offers a lot of opportunity having this abundant amount of public lands. So you could stay, you know, anywhere on the BLM land, there's, you know, open dispersed camping anywhere you want to stay, but the refuge itself offers three free primitive campgrounds um, that are available on a first come first serve campground or first come first serve basis. There's mm -hmm. drinking water available at the refuge headquarters. All of them have pit toilets, 
there are designated fire rings at a few of them as well. So you can bring some firewood and stay warm if you're in the season of of, uh, of cold nights still. All right. So let's jump into one of the main reasons. You know, when I hear about people headed out to heart, um, it's often for either hunting or it's to go to this specific place. And that is the stay in camp at the Heart Mountain Hot Springs. Uh, so describe the hot springs a little bit and the campground and what that experience brings overall. Yeah, yeah, you got it. I mean, the hot springs and the campground there are really one of the main drivers to go. And they're really worth it. You know, I mean, that's that's an understatement. I remember the first time I drove in, you kind of enter this basin on the eastern side of, of the 8,000 flood foot plus Warner Mountain. As soon as you can see the campground, you'll just see the sparkling of the quake and aspen leaves shaking in the breeze. And, um, you know, if it's cold out, you'll see the frosty air above the hot spring pools and uh, you know you found a good spot. And so the first thing I would do is you, you drive through the campground. There's about 20 different sites that are available there at any given time. And thankfully, it's a really rare occasion when all the campgrounds are full. So usually you can pull in and find a site and get set up. You know, they've most all of them have a good grassy meadow spot with a flat tent site or a flat RV site if you wanted to bring an RV in there. The roads gravel um, once you get to Plush, it mostly turns well. Once you get to the refuge headquarters, um, it's a gravel road, but they take really good care of it. Um, so you could bring an RV in there. I see lots of RVs, but there's also great tent sites. Most all the sites are up against a you know a little brook that you can listen to as you drift off to sleep. All of them are within, you know, 200 yard walk of, of the main hot springs. Um, so there's two different hot springs you can actually soak in. Uh, the first one's just this awesome rock wall lined pool that was actually developed back during the, the Civilian Conservation Corps days in the 1930s. And they built this awesome local rock, basically small bathing pool that's about eight feet wide by 10 feet um, long and about six feet deep, just a crystal clear 98 degree soak that's it's just a great experience but you could also go for a slightly warmer soak uh, if you walk about 100 yards south of the main pool and you can sit in a natural hot spring that's closer to about 102 103 so a little closer to that the hot tub temperature that most of us are used to but yeah they're both great and it offers you know that quick chance to get back to your tent and warm back up after a good soak yeah, it's that that area is is pretty magic. It's pretty cool. You know, you've got the surrounding landscapes. And then it's there's kind of a fun communal aspect of going especially that CCC hot springs that you that you mentioned. It's just a good vibe. You like you'll meet other people there. It's pretty fun. I it's it's one of my favorite hot springs experiences in Oregon uh for sure. So that's that's definitely a reason to come out here. Now, out in this corner of Oregon, uh the wildlife is a lot different than the west side. So what kind of animals can you hope to see? You know, you mentioned that this is a place where you're not lying to your kids if you're going to see, you know, some animals. So what are they most likely to see out there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're going to see some animals and some some birds and wildlife. And, uh, I, you know, of course, pronghorn antelope are probably the first thing you're going to see on the drive over. They spend their summers on Heart Mountain National Wild Antelope Refuge, and then they spend sort of the winters down in the Sheldon, and that's the way they set up this, this system so that they make sure to have both summer and winter range protected. So in the summertime, you're more likely to see pronghorn on the refuge itself. You usually see them near the refuge headquarters, but you can even see them trotting through the campground at the hot springs. Um, same thing with mule deer. You're going to see mule deer uh, at the hot springs is a really popular place to see them. You know, And that's, again, I mean, 
what a cool experience to be able to sit in a hot spring and, and uh, keep your binoculars nearby for doing some, some uh, <laughs> wildlife watching. And, you know, the other thing that the refuge is really well known for is, you know, it was actually the first place that they reintroduced bighorn sheep to Oregon. You know, you talked about how we feel like wildlife is on the decline now, but in the early 1900s, um, both bighorn, uh, California and Rocky Mountain bighorns were extirpated from the state. And so it was in the 1950s that Hart Mountain became the first place they came back to Oregon. Um, they reintroduced them from British Columbia. And that herd grew to over 400 animals over time. It's definitely down in size now. And they just finished up a bighorn sheep management plan to try to recover the population on the refuge. But, you know, that's another amazing species that you get a rare chance to see on the refuge. So that's kind of the big game that you're likely to see. But I mean, endless, um, it's, it's not as well known for its bird life, but there's really, really strong population of sage grouse, which is a really critical species there in the sagebrush step. Um, sandhill cranes in the summertime and then waterfowl down at the Warner wetlands. And then some other species to keep an eye out for, uh, there is rattlesnakes on the refuge. So <laughs> something to always uh, keep your eye peeled for. There is, uh, you know, cougars on the refuge as well. All right. So sage grouse are definitely one of the best known species out in that area. It's, you know, something we hear about a lot on the West side uh, about them both being imperiled, but also really iconic and kind of a cool bird that is is not like just about anything else so are there places around heart mountain that you can see them and if you wanted to how do you make that happen yeah that's a that's a great question zach and um one of my favorite things about all of southeast oregon is visiting it in the springtime when sage grouse go through a process um or go to a place they call a lek uh and a lek is a place where male sage grouse congregate and uh, sort of, for lack of a better term, sing and dance um, to try to recruit a, a mate for the, um, for the nesting season. And it's just a really incredible experience. You, you have to wake up. So the, the lecking season is from sort of early April through, well, mid-March actually really through the uh, beginning of May. And they go every single day to this one spot year after year after year after year. It's just one of my favorite experiences to wake up in that pre-dawn, uh, chilly spring weather of the desert country um, and hike out to a lek and, and listen to them um, and watch them just dance around in the, in, as the sun comes up over the sagebrush. And, you know, if you Google this uh, or, you know, look at I know Oregon Field Guide has done some great episodes on uh, on on this subject but can you kind of describe what their their mating dance looks like a little bit because it's 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 pretty unique and um i don't know if there's a a great way to describe it but take a swing at it oh great uh yeah this, this is definitely not going to do it justice the males have these jar large air sacs on their chest that bulge up full of air and then it pops out of their chest and deflates and it's kind of a boop bloop, boop bloop. And it, uh, it, that's terrible description, but it, it's just an amazing thing to witness. And again, you know, if you got time to watch, listen to the podcast, hopefully you can click on a quick YouTube link and, and watch it take place. But they, they put their fan feathers out in the back, blow up those air sacs, and then they tend to kind of jump up in the air as they deflate their sacs. Um, and it's a very, very 
I don't know, back in time, sort of an experience to be able to watch it. Um, you know, I, I think the reason I went out there years ago was I was doing a, a book on uh, hiking Southern Oregon, which was from all the way from the Redwoods uh, all the way over to like the Oahe. So like the entire Southern stretch of Oregon. And so that's that's why I was in Heart Mountain. And I was there for two kind of different reasons because it was a hiking book. And one of the most memorable places for me to visit. So, you know, I made base camp at uh, at the Heart Mountain campground with the hot springs there. And then I went out and did some did some hikes in the area. And the one that was really memorable for me was DeGarmo Canyon, just this enchanted forested canyon. It's actually got a substantial waterfall that you don't expect to see in southeast or south central Oregon. There's also a really nice loop. So you can go through this canyon, then up on a ridge where you can look back over the desert. So I'd say that was a, a highlight for me out there. What sticks out to you about uh, about DeGarmo? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic hike. And I'd put it at the top three for sure to adventure into. You know, like you mentioned, it's, it's that forested canyon, right? Which is that it's the neat thing about this fault block mountain is it offers all these different microclimates depending on the aspect and the elevation and and that's really what harbors a lot of the, the reasons for it being a wildlife mecca, because you can travel from the 4,000 foot valley floor of Warner Valley all the way up to 8,000 foot Warner Mountain. And in between that, you've got these steep canyons that carve through the mountain slope. And DeGarmo is one of the best of them. And so that it's that microclimate where you start this hike at 4,500 feet and you can go all the way up to 8,000 if you want to. And the views just keep getting better the further up you go. You know, it's a rare treat to have a, a stream at the side of you in this country. You get to see everything from aspen to junipers to ponderosa pines in there. And then if you if you make it all the way up into the upper basin of DeGarmo, that is one of the hot spots for wildlife on the refuge. I mean, I've seen bighorn sheep in together with pronghorn and mule deer all in the same basin in there. Um, and it's just a really, it's a place that not a lot of people adventure into, which I think is part of the reason it harbors so many wildlife. One thing I wanted to mention, you know, when you're hiking in this area, and this will be more relevant, I think, for the next place we talk about, but there's trails for sure. And there's roads. They're not nearly as well marked as people might be used to on the west side and the, you know, Three Sisters and the more famous kind of wilderness areas that see a lot more people. Can you talk a little bit about route finding up there and maybe some things to consider? Because, what you know, I found trails and like I was able to navigate using a GPS and a compass and maps and stuff like that. But it's not super easy in the same way that people might be used for. So can you kind of talk about that navigational aspect out there? It's it's different than where I grew up on the western side of Oregon, where you can't see more than a couple hundred yards at a time. I mean, you can you can stare at the bottom of, of Heart Mountain and you can see the top. Um, and so in that sense, it makes the navigation really compelling for an adventurous person where you can just, you know, anywhere your legs can take you, you can see the the end goal for the most part. It's got vistas for miles and miles. But, you know, in order to navigate through something like DeGarmo Canyon, there isn't really a hiking trail. There's sort of more of a old cattle trail, if you will. And parts of it are pretty good and parts of it are rocky scree scrambles. And so, you know, I guess my recommendation would be to pick up one of the the mini apps from a from a phone that offer, you know, there's Onyx Maps is the one that I use, but there's Gaia Maps and there's the Avenza Maps, which is a free free service. So you can download the uh, the refuges map and then you can mm -hmm. identify exactly where you are there. So using the phone to, to navigate through um, and then also you can kind of see, because you can see so far ahead, you'll get a better feel the longer you're out there for like, oh, that's like four foot tall shrubs. I don't want to hike through that. 
here's a grassy meadow <laughs> over here. And so you, you know, the more time you spend out there, the better you are at learning which path to take. And that just takes some time. All right. Well, I want, next I want to talk about getting up into kind of the high country because that is, that's definitely a compelling part of this. I need you to dif differentiate two things for me real quick because I didn't have time to kind of research this. And it's, again, it's been a while since I've been out there. Is there a difference between Warner Peak and Heart Mountain or are they part of the same geological complex? So, and I, I could be, I'm just quoting this from memory, but um, I believe Heart Mountain is the the entire fault block range, right? So it's it's that yeah. whole mountainside, whereas Warner Peak is the tallest point on Heart Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 90% I'm 90 sure you're right on that. It's just like, it can be confusing because you'll throw on around different stuff like Heart Mountain, but Warner Peak and and just, you know, yes, yeah, making sure we have like, that. the moment the nomenclature straight. So on that topic, uh, you know, climbing up Warner Peak is definitely an iconic uh, hike when you're out there is one I did. It's and like you said, it's not really so much a trail. There's paths, but it's kind of this wide open trek to the top. There's a lot of views in every direction. It actually kind of reminds me if you go to like a place like Sutton Mountain, uh, which is another fault block over the Painted Hills. We're just kind of hiking through this sage blush or sage, sage grass area up to cliffs to the edge of the top. So for Warner Peak, you know, how long of a trip are we talking about? And what are the highlights for you getting into the high country of Heart Mountain slash Warner Peak? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's another top three hike for me as well. Um, it's, it is a longer hike. You know, I think it's about eight miles round trip with a, about 2,000 feet of elevation gain. And there's a couple different ways you can go about doing the hike. There is an old road that used to be the way you got up to a lookout that used to be up there. There's still some structures up top, um, but there used to actually be a lookout all the way up there. And so if you park at the end of the campground road, there's a, there's a locked gate there and you can hike along that road all the way up to the top of the mountain. And it's a little over eight miles round trip if you stay on that old road. So that's a that's a really great way to go if you want to stay on a path the whole way, eventually achieve the goal. The other really fun thing to do to get to the top of Warner Peak is from the campground hot springs, you can just head off to the west and you'll see, you know, you can see this grassy hill slope all the way up to the ridge. You can just pick your way through the grass and the shrubs up to the top of the ridge. And then you get this awesome ridge hike that looks down into that uh, DeGarmo Canyon basin we were talking about where you can see all that wildlife and you go through a couple saddles that are really often um, places where big game like to spend time. And then the other place that's really awesome on that ridge is it, to me, the thing that stands out is these mountain mahogany stands. And if you've never seen a mountain mahogany, they're these gnarled windblown uh, trees that stand about 10 to 15 feet tall at their highest. And they create these canopies across hundred to 200 yards and really thick, dense patches and um, just a really cool place to drop down and take a break and have lunch on a hike or something. Now, you've mentioned, and I didn't get a chance to see it, but there's some petroglyphs around Heart Mountain and uh, apparently some really good ones. I didn't get the chance to see them on my trip. So what are we talking about and, and what are we seeing when you when you reference that? Yeah, I, I think I remember hearing that there's thousands upon thousands of petroglyphs spread throughout the greater Heart Sheldon region. And every time I go, I seem to find more and more places um, where there's petroglyphs hiding in the rock walls. It's a great thing to go off an adventure on your own and try to find some, but there are a couple of places that are great to start with. Again, you know, I've got kids and so it's really fun to be able to 
know a place or two where you're going to guarantee yourself um, that opportunity to show someone else um, that that deep, rich history from the past. The first I'd recommend is uh, is Petroglyph, Petroglyph Lake. It's just about a mile from the refuge headquarters, and it's just a couple miles from the campground. So it's a good thing to do on a day after you get set up and get some camp going. It's about a three-mile round-trip hike to an old lake bed. And along the western shore of that lake bed, there's these 20, 20-ish foot tall rim rocks. Petroglyphs are just scattered all about that rim rock country there. Really cool rock art to see. And then the other place I'd recommend easier access even than that is if you, on your way to Heart Mountain, there's a big sign that says, Welcome to Heart Mountain National Wildlife, National Antelope Refuge. And just to the left of that sign, there's a little road that skirts along the lake bed. All throughout that first half mile of the road there, um, there's boulders on the side of the hill. And many of those boulders have some great petroglyphs to go walk around and explore. Now, I, it's okay if you don't have this this knowledge offhand, but do you have a history for the first people that put those petroglyphs there? Like, do you like like is there interpretive signs kind of detailing who they were, kind of what the petroglyphs mean, or anything like that? There, there are some signs at the refuge to talk about it. And then again, in the summertime, there's a visitor center at the refuge headquarters that I should mention that's open and available to the public. And the Friends of Heart Mountain Refuge staffs that in the summertime. And so they're a great resource to just stop in and, and chat with and talk about the history of the refuge from everything from the, the First Peoples to the wildlife and, and the, the geology of the area is incredible too. But mm-hmm. my, you know, sort of a simple understanding of, of the, the Native Americans on the refuge is that it was um, the Northern Paiute Indians who inhabited that landscape and, and they used the Warner Valley wetlands is a place that today is a series of wetland lakes. But, you know, when we talk about the Great Basin country, after the Ice Age, um, there was a lot of water in the Great Basin. There uh, was abundant wildlife, even more so than today because of that water source. And over time, that water is slowly dried up. But that's really what led to the rich history of, of the Native American usage on the refuges is the water. Uh, now there is a bunch of desert lakes. Like that's one thing you can't miss uh, when you climb, you know, high up on Heart Mountain. You can see these lakes spreading out below. I think or there's Heart Lake, there's Crump Lake, there's Albert Lake. So what can you tell me about those lakes, and also about kind of what you can or can't do there? It's really a, a a neat place. That's all on the BLM land down there. So it's all primarily public land managed by the BLM. And these lakes formed thousands of years ago when these uh, you know, this, the Heart Mountain is a fault block mountain, which means that the earth crust was actually stretching there. And so there was a rift in the crustal plate that caused the Heart Mountain to go up and this plateau to stretch out. And so as time went on, that basin actually stretched out into this lake bed. Um, and then during the Ice Age, it filled up with water. And it's um, it's one of the best places to go and view waterfowl in the region. Um, it's 40 mile long chain of lakes, like you mentioned, and there's a series of them working their way north to south. There's an interpretive site there. Uh, there's even a valley canoe trail if the, on high water years. So certain years, um, there's a 40 mile long canoe trail, which I've always wanted to do, but I've never hit it during the time of year when, or during a uh, wet enough series of years when you can do that. Um, but it sounds like a fun adventure. Yeah. That does sound like a good one. I, I, I'm I'm very curious about that. It, it seems interesting to do a canoe trip through 
the Oregon high desert. I, I like that idea. I'm going to have to have to put that on the list and we'll figure out a way to get out there. Now, yeah, um, for for a lot of folks that, that I know, this area is actually best known for hunting. You know, there's there's a lot of species out there. I know it's like a, a bucket list trip for a lot of people. So what can you tell me about the hunting um, in this area and the opportunity and, you know, what's what's all involved with the hunting scene out there? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I'm, I've been a lifelong hunter in Oregon myself. And ever since my first visit there, uh, it's a place that I have always wanted to hunt. So on most refuges throughout the country, they actually do offer um, hunting opportunities. And they're, you know, vary depending on the refuge that you're at. Um, and so Heart Mountain is, you know, it's made, it was created to protect and improve the pronghorn antelope populations. And so it's a little rare and that it's actually sort of known for its big game populations, whereas a lot of refuges are known for their waterfowl and, and the habitat they provide for migrating birds. And it truly is some of the best of the best hunting anywhere in the country for big game species like mule deer and pronghorn and the bighorn sheep. And there's also pretty good upland bird hunting opportunities on the refuge that are offered for chucker during the fall season. And so many people will put in, myself included, you put in for a series of every year you, you build a point that you don't hunt that species. And so you build points over time in the state of Oregon, and it takes upwards of 15 to 20 plus years to draw a tag to hunt on Heart Mountain, pronghorn and mule deer. And so I'm still, uh, I'm still waiting for my chance at this tag. You know, there's always that, that, that lottery chance that maybe you'll be one of the lucky 25% that gets a draw. Um, but then bighorn sheep are managed differently. Everyone, every hunter in Oregon who puts in for a bighorn sheep is drawn at random. And at one point on the refuge, I just was doing some research on this. Um, there was more than 40 tags a year offered on the refuge for bighorn sheep. And that just gives you an idea of the potential for the refuge um, and that kind of habitat that it provides. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from sponsors. Now, when we get back, we're going to talk about how the refuge formed how it's worked over the years and how it might be updated into the future and some of those challenges that it faces. Uh, we'll also talk about some cool places you can visit on a trip out to Heart Mountain. So that's all when we return. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. Well, there is a long history at the Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge of Conservation that extends way back into the 1920s and 1930s, which is pretty early in the conservation timeline. So what happened back then 
Um, and why did we get this conservation thing going? And how did it kind of work over the decades after it was established? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's one of the longest storied histories uh, in the Great Basin in terms of conservation. Um, you know, the very first refuge was created in the, the early 1900s um, on Pelican Island in Florida. And, and that was done by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and it set off kind of a chain of opportunities to protect other places for specific to wildlife. And I, you know, we don't have a lot of time to dwell on it here, but the neat thing about the National Wildlife Refuge System is that it's public lands that are managed specifically for wildlife. Kind of the, the main storyline here for Hart Mountain, as well as Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge to the south, um, is that they they did exactly what they were hoping to do with returning pronghorn populations. Um, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but you know that overharvest and the loss of habitat led to what would have been almost certain extinction of pronghorn antelope. At one point, there was less than 13,000 pronghorn left in the country. That was in the 1910s. This certain place, because of its remoteness, harbored a fair number of those 10 to 15,000 pronghorn left. Where, you know, we talked about the success of Hart Mountain and some of these other wildlife refuges at preserving these iconic species. But where are we currently? You know, sage grouse is often in the news uh, as a land use issue in the high desert. But you also mentioned mule deer, bighorn, sh bighorn sheep. Um, so where are the numbers recently? Are they still pretty healthy? Are they declining? Like, give me a snapshot of where they are at this moment. Yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could tell a bright and cheery story on the the current numbers of, of big game and also sage grouse on the refuge. But um, like many places in the West, let's start with sage grouse, which are on a declining trend uh, across the West in general, and actually are a candidate for listing species for the Endangered Species Act. Um, Hart Mountain is one of the strongest places left for sage grouse in the entire West, and it's actually one of the focal areas for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as they sort of monitor trends. Um, sage grouse, even on the refuge, are still on a general declining trend. And we're, we're trying, researchers are really trying to figure out why that is. Um, again, I think it comes back to a number of factors. Climate change is certainly one of them. Mule deer are also on a declining trend on the refuge. Kind of a really concerning trend, to be honest. I don't have exact numbers, but if you talk to any uh, biologist or, or just a hunter or somebody who spent a lot of time out on the refuge, you know, this trip, this most recent trip out to Hart Mountain, I saw probably 25 mule deer over a four-day period, maybe 30 mule deer over a four-day period. Whereas back in the 1980s, 1990s, you would see closer to 100 plus each and every day. So it gives you an idea of some of the changes that have taken place. And then bighorn sheep are really one of the big, most recent stories on Hart Mountain. Earlier, I talked about how it was the first place in Oregon to reintroduce California, California bighorn sheep. They did amazing for a long time. That initial 20 animals over time grew to a high of over 400 in the 1980s. And then there was sort of a, a steady decline that stabilized around 150 animals for a number of years. And then just recently in the last three years, that population went from 150 to a low of 48 animals in 2020. And wow. this decline was at the level of, of of extinction, where the, the herd was no longer able to sustain itself. And so they, they rapidly worked with, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and ODFW uh, just finished up a bighorn sheep management plan 
that's going to look at a variety of ways to try to bring the population back. And, and the good news here to end on is that this past year was the first year of surveys in several years where they've seen a slight uptick in the bighorn sheep population. So we're really hopeful that it keeps going that way. All right, good. Okay, well, we're going to take another quick break to hear from our second sponsor. When we return, uh, we're going to touch on a few things to do uh, when you're heading out to Heart Mountain, a few things you could hit on a road trip out there. So that's when we return. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. So the trails of the Oregon coast and the Tillamook coast are popular for good reason. They offer everything from panoramic ocean views to stands of venerable old growth trees. With the need to get outside and experience these places stronger now than ever, you'll find their parking lots and trails are also often full. With a little pre-planning, you can avoid the crowds and discover some new favorite trails. Visit our trails and recreation map online at TillamookCoast.com. You can choose from a wide variety of lesser known trails. Not only will you be opening yourself up to new discovery, but you'll be helping to ease the wear and tear on many of our most crowded spots. So once again, check out TillamookCoast.com to get started with your less traveled adventure. All right, welcome back. So we're going to wrap up the podcast by talking about a few of our favorite places around Heart Mountain. So these are places that you could visit on a road trip out to that area because it's by no means just Heart Mountain. There's all kinds of good stuff. So places that I like to hit, there's a place called Crack in the Ground, which is literally exactly what it sounds like. It's this very deep canyon where you can hike down between these sheer walls into a literal crack in the ground. It's just kind of a short hike but a fun place to go. Uh, another favorite thing to do out there is uh, the Hager Mountain Lookout. Uh, so it's a steep climb up to the top of Hager Mountain. You can reserve the lookout up there, and I've done it, and it's a great experience. It's pretty tough to get that lookout these days, but you can still climb Hager Mountain in the summer, get an amazing view of the surrounding area. Fort Rock State Park, a uh, very cool place to go. It looks like kind of an ancient, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, Colosseum of rock where you can hike into it and it kind of feels like you're in a big circular uh, rock dome, essentially. And, uh, you know, if you're hungry, uh, there's a place called the Cowboy Diner out there that you can get just about the best meal you've ever had. You often got to call ahead, but definitely worth a stop. And then there is uh, Summer Lake Hot Springs, which uh, is is more hot springs to enjoy it. Now, Michael, do you have other places, other favorite spots in that area that you would recommend hitting uh, on a trip out to Heart Mountain? Yeah. I mean, there's so much to cover. We could do a whole nother podcast on the, the mini side trips uh, <laughs> for a road trip through Southeast Oregon. But I mean, you hit some great ones. Uh, Cowboy Dinner Tree, uh, given that it's lunchtime right now, is sounding pretty darn good. <laughs> but, I, you know, I would recommend, you know, if you're, if you're a big birder, it would be a great trip to do uh, a summer lake, which is a, a state managed wildlife area just to the west of Heart Mountain. So summer lake would be a, a great place to stop. And you can see there's a whole flock of swans that come through. There's all kinds of waterfowl. It's just just by those hot springs that you mentioned, um, but a little more um, 
you know, before you soak in those summer lake hot springs, you'd stop in and check out the birds there. Also, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is another national wildlife refuge. It was just a few miles, like it's about 40 miles east of Heart Mountain, um, but that's a great combination trip. And then also, I think if I was going to give advice on a you know week-long road trip with Heart Mountain, I would probably say go to Heart Mountain and then go to the, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge and take a trip up Steens, uh, Steens Mountain, which is all in that same country. You can stay at the French Glen Hotel there, which is a, a state park hotel. It kind of feels like the true old Wild West. You go downstairs for for your breakfast and your dinners, and it's it's a really affordable place to stay uh, with a good roof over your head in French Glen, that historic town there. So those are a couple other good adventures to be had while you're out in this country. Perfect. Yeah, and we're we're actually planning a uh, a podcast on Steens Mountain specifically, <laughs> so that's that's definitely be coming up because that you you cannot do justice to Steens Mountain um, very quickly. Once again, I've been talking to Michael O'Casey. He is the Pacific Northwest Field Manager for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Now, I'm sure pretty much everyone listening to this knows who Theodore Roosevelt is. But tell us a little bit more about the conservation partnership. What are you guys all about and, and what do you do? Yeah, thanks, Zach. Well, the TRCP, uh, as we're known for short, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, you know, we have a mission to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. And we're a national nonprofit um, that's based in Washington, D.C., but we have offices out west in Missoula and in Denver, Montana, or Denver, Colorado. Um, and we work, you know, our, me and my colleagues specifically work on uh, throughout public lands in the Western states to, you know, identify key places like Heart Mountain that um, there's conservation opportunities there to make sure that we have lasting opportunities to hunt and fish and enjoy wildlife dependent recreation. We're uniquely gifted as uh, in the United States to have a vast amount of public lands and our organization works hard to make sure that those public lands are accessible and provide opportunities um, to enjoy them. Awesome. Well, Michael, I appreciate so much the time that you've shared with us, hitting on the history, all the cool stuff to do around Heart Mountain. Uh, so I appreciate your time and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, that sounds great, Zach. Thanks again for having me. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.